Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts, shall we? Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your amazing grace. Father, it's not just a, a phrase or a, a line of a song. Lord, it's a, a reality that your grace truly is remarkable. That you would give up the glory, the majesty of heaven and come and give us life. And give us, Lord, beyond just a new life, the power to, to live with you by imparting into, into us your Holy Spirit. And, Lord, the blessings, the abundance that surrounds us. And, Father, all that is yet to come. Lord, we just thank you for what you've done. And as we turn now to study your word, Lord, just help us to understand a little more of this grace. And a little bit more of how and why that should impact and change the way we think about everything. And so, Lord, we just give you this time now. Speak to us, we pray, through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the epistle to the Romans. Uh, it's been said that this is Paul's definitive statement of Christian doctrine. And certainly, it's one of the most amazing books in the Bible. Uh, it's certainly one of uh, Paul's uh, most comprehensive um, writings that we have. What is the role, though, of the book of Romans? Well, as we said, it really is a definitive statement of the gospel according to Paul. Certainly the most comprehensive book in the New Testament in regards to doctrine and theology in so, so many areas. Um, it's been said it's the most profound of all literature. Now, that's quite some claim and uh, statement. Um, but its impact on history truly is unequaled. I mean, if we look at the book of Romans, we look at the, the way that it has shaped the world in which we live today. You know, it was the book that led to the Reformation. And it's a book that we need to understand is written to believers. Whereas some of the other books in Scripture are not necessarily written directly to believers, this book is written for and directly to Christians. It's been said that this book will delight the greatest logician because it's so logical in Paul's presentation here of God's plan of salvation. It's been said also that it will hold the attention of the wisest men and it will bring the humblest soul to the feet of the Saviour. Well, the theme really is quite simply the grace of God revealed. And that's what we're going to explore as we go through this. And Paul's going to contrast God's righteousness with our iniquity. You see, really, this is the human predicament. What is the most terrifying fact in the Bible? Well, you may search through all the different pages of the Old Testament and look in the New Testament, go to Revelation, go wherever you want to go. The most terrifying fact in the whole Bible, you actually find in Psalm um, 119, verse 68, and we're told there that God is good. Why is that terrifying? Well, because it poses the question, what does a good God do with someone like you, with someone like me? You see, what does a good God who is holy, who is righteous, do with sinners? You see, we may have a different standard that we could tolerate sin, we can accept it, but God, if he is good, cannot tolerate sin. So God has to deal with it. And you see, you and I are rightly deserving of God's wrath. But God demonstrates his love for us by his grace. And we see in this book that God's remedy to that predicament is his grace. <clears throat> now, it's been said, what is the subject of Romans? Well, quite simply, the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the word itself means good news. In the first 70 verses, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us six important facts about the good news. One, 
its source is God. Two, it was promised by the prophetic Old Testament scriptures. Three, it's the good news concerning God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Four, it is God's power for salvation. And five, it is for all men, Gentiles as well as Jews. And then finally, six, it's by faith alone. That's from the Believer's Bible Commentary by William MacDonald. I thought it was quite a good uh, outline of just those first 17 verses of the first chapter. We'll look at those in a moment in a little bit more detail. But Chuck Mizzler says this, Paul was a Roman citizen with both Hebrew and Greek culture, and Greek culture of history, religion, philosophy, poetry, science, music, etc. Yet a Hebrew of Hebrews, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, studied under Gamaliel in Jerusalem, and he said, this book will, again, great, uh, delight the greatest logician, hold the attention of the wisest of men, and will bring the humblest soul to the feet of the Saviour. You see, a God that is small enough for our mind need not be big enough for our need. Now, a lot of people try and understand God. You're not going to understand God. And if you do try and understand God and you think you've got there, then you've got the wrong God. You see, God, by very definition, is way beyond our thoughts and uh, anything that we could imagine ourselves. And we see this plan that we could have not have, have concocted or come up with uh, that Paul presents. Now this is the first of Paul's epistles in the New Testament. Again, it's not written to a church that he founded. Uh, a lot of the epistles that Paul writes were to churches that he went and established. But this one is just written to the Christians in Rome, written sometime during the spring of about AD 57, while he's nearing the end of his third missionary journey. Now last week uh, we looked at some of these things. So Paul left Antioch on his third missionary journey, travelling back through Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, and on through down to Ephesus. Uh, from Ephesus he travels from there up to Troas, uh, and then finally across to Philippi. He was waiting for Titus, he didn't appear, so he carries on his journey, and he comes down then the coast, ends up in Corinth. And it's from Corinth that Paul writes this letter to the Roman Christians. Now, if you look at all of Paul's letters, the Thessalonians uh, letters, or first, uh, in fact, the, the, the first two, uh, we have are the first writings of Paul, somewhere in the spring of AD 50. And we see roughly uh, about an eight-year span as Paul's writing uh, all these letters that we have in the New Testament. It took Paul about eight years to write them. Some Christians have spent a lifetime and still haven't read them. Um, but uh, the book of Romans, somewhere in the middle of all these writings, as I say, toward the end of that third missionary journey. Now, where did the church in Rome come from? It wasn't founded by Paul, as we said. Well, certainly there were visitors uh, on the day of Pentecost that had come from Rome that were in Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 10. Um, and no doubt some of those were among the 3,000 converts that took the, the gospel message back to pagan Rome and planted churches there, house churches typically. And no doubt other believers also migrated to Rome. We've got two examples, Aquila and Priscilla. Um, that we know of. They'd lived in Italy um, before, in Acts 18.2, we're told of that, and they apparently moved back there as well. Now, also, we're told that Phoebe uh, is going to be the lady who's going to carry this letter back to Rome. That's right at the end of the book, we're told that. Um, And there's 28 people that are named in this letter. Um, Significantly, not Peter, who apparently, according to one certain church will tell us that Peter um, was the, the, the first pope and uh, set up his uh, headquarters in Rome. There's no actual evidence that Peter ever went to Rome whatsoever, uh, interestingly enough. Um, but Peter's not mentioned in this letter that Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, um, but a number of others are. So there seems to be quite a vibrant Christian community there. Um, 
And uh, many of the converts uh, that Paul had uh, brought to know the Lord in his travels also had ended up there as well for different reasons. So Paul, as I say, is writing to believers, um, not preaching for them to be converted. This epistle is giving them instruction on the foundation of our faith and what it is to be saved. Now, one of the things that we see uh, is this trilogy in the New Testament uh, that's based upon Habakkuk 2.4. And in very, in very much it's, got, it's a great summary uh, of the book of Romans because we're told the just shall live by faith. And that's one of the things that Paul really hammers away at in this book. That it is simply by accepting what God has done for us, what Christ has accomplished, that we can be saved. Not anything of ourselves. There was nothing we had, nothing we could bring. Now, we find that in the book of Romans, primarily Paul deals with who are the just. And he answers that question. So who are they? That's the book of Romans. In the book of Galatians, we find that the they shall live. It's how are we going to live as believers? So the just shall live. And finally, we have the book of Hebrews, which gives us this great declaration of faith and what faith is. And in each of those books, we find this verse, Habakkuk 2 verse 4, um, seems seemingly to be an intentional design by the Holy Spirit, that we have this incredible trilogy uh, unpacking that little verse um, from the book of Habakkuk. Well, the outline of the book of Romans is fairly simple in a sense. We've got three sections. The first section is chapters, yeah, chapter 1 through 8. And we see chapters 1 to 3, sin really being addressed. And we get a very complete diagnosis. Chapters 4 and 5 is talk about salvation. And then chapters 6 through 8, talking about sanctification. Being set apart once we are saved. So that's the first section. We then move into the second section, chapters 9 through 11, and it's all about Israel. It's looking at Israel past, present, and future. Um, we'll spend a little bit of time on that in a while. And then the final section from chapters 12 through 16 is very much instruction for Christians as how we are to live. The, the how do we kind of question really is addressed there. So we have faith, hope, and love, if you want to break those down into sections and give each section a title, uh, which is quite interesting. The first section, again, is very much doctrinal. The second one, dispensational, looking at God's dealing through time. And then the final section is very much practical. Well, the first two chapters, again, as we just mentioned a moment ago, they're dealing with the, the, the issue of sin and the fact that we're all part of a fallen race. And what Paul tries to do is systematically show that it doesn't matter where you're coming from, what your position, you are guilty before a holy God. And the first person he addresses is the pagan man. The man that would you know, reject uh, God and whatever else. But then Paul says, but creation is enough. We look at the world and there is enough evidence in all that we see to convince the skeptic. If they choose not to believe, it's because they are willfully ignorant, which is a phrase that Peter will use in his letter. Um, so the pagan man is guilty before a holy God because there's enough evidence. And as uh, David was sharing briefly this morning, and Dr. David Rosevere is going to be sharing at this talk very soon, you know, there was this question mark over DNA and the, the whole idea of junk DNA, and that and has been totally rebutted. You know, there is no such thing as junk DNA. Everything is there, it's necessary, it's important. And the more we understand, the more we realize that there is a designer. Moral man is the second person that's addressed. The person that has his own standards. 
Now, we all know people like this that have their own view of God and how God should do things. You know, and they've no doubt they're already getting ready to explain to God on that day why God should have done it this way or that way or whatever else. Um, but you see, even those people who have their own moral standards don't even live up to the standard they have. And therefore they're convicted by their own conscience. Even those individuals are guilty before a holy God because they can't even make their own standards, let alone God's. And then finally Paul will address the religious man, somebody who's very pious, who wants to be right with God. And yet Paul makes it clear that there's no way, even by your own best efforts, that you can be right with a holy God. Commitment, sincerity, all of those things are not enough. All three individuals, whatever position you come from, and really that encompasses everything, are all declared to be guilty before a holy God. So, chapter 3 then really highlights God's greatest problem. You see, to compromise his hatred of sin would be to compromise God's own character. So God can't just ignore sin. You see, how can a just God justify sinful man? As we said, those first two chapters make it clear. We are all confined under sin. There's none that is righteous, not one, is what Paul will tell us. So how can he permit man to enjoy the destiny that God has made for us, an eternity with God? How can we get from this position of being separated from God on account of our sin to a place where we can enjoy the things that God has clearly prepared and planned for us? Showing incredible insight, Socrates, around about 500 BC, Greek philosopher, said to Plato, It may be that deity can forgive sins, but I do not see how. That shows great insight because he's acknowledging that if there is a deity, how can that deity just forgive? Say, it doesn't matter. Now, of course, we know that this is addressed, and it's addressed because of what Christ accomplished for us. And so in chapter 4, Paul really there speaks of God's greatest gift. And we get two examples to lead us into this really. We've got the example of Abraham. And really the question is posed as to how was Abraham saved before the law was given? And then we we have David presented. And how was David saved? And he was under the law. So already we can see just in those two examples, the law in itself is not the thing that will save. Because Abraham wasn't under the law. And then we find out, it's very clear, that both individuals were saved by grace imputed through faith. We find that Paul speaks of David um, and quotes from Psalms and elsewhere. Uh, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And of course, with Abraham as well, we know that Abraham was justified by faith, not by anything he could have done. It's purely by the grace of God. So chapter 4, in a way, also demonstrates the unity of the Old and the New Testament together and how they have to work side by side. Chapter 5 goes on and really concludes the arguments for salvation or justification, how we are made right with God. And then the question, of course, is how then shall I live? Well, chapter 6, 7, and 8 really will lay that out for us. Now, just carrying on with chapter 5 for a moment, we see, we see two heads. We're going to look at this in a moment. Uh, we have Adam, who's in a sense the federal head of the human race, and we see Christ, who's the head of this new family. We then have in chapter 6, two masters, and um, we'll explore that briefly. But we have sin as one master and Christ as the other. We have a choice as to who we're going to serve. 
And then finally, in chapter 7, we have two husbands that are presented to us. We have the law and the risen Christ. And you can't be married to both husbands. And of course, in, as we understand, that if you are married to a husband and your husband dies, you are no longer bound by the law. You're no longer married to that husband. And the point is that we have died to that old life, and this is what Paul will make very clear. So the law no longer has any power. The law that would convict us and sentence us no longer has power over us because we're now joined to Christ. So let's just go back and put put out some of those things from that opening section of the book of Romans. Uh, In chapter 1, there's so much in this chapter. It's a great chapter um, doctrinally. Paul opens with just a a greeting as he does, uh, explains his reasons for writing and so on, and the need for the gospel. But interestingly, Paul introduces himself as the least. That's what his, his name means, the least, that is the name, the little one. He, he explains that he's, he's nothing. In fact, First Timothy chapter 1, he says that he's the chief of sinners. Now, you and I may feel that we're in times you know, where we, we look at our own lives and we just feel just ashamed even of our own conduct, our own thoughts. Well, Paul says that he's the chief of sinners. You know, whatever you've done, Paul said he's been there, he's been worse. And of course, we know from, Paul's, uh, from the history of Paul that he hated the church, he hated Christians, he hated Christ. And so Paul says that he's the, the chief of sinners. And uh, interesting enough, he was also the most devoutly or devoutly religious man who ever lived. He makes this claim of himself in Philippians chapter 3, speaking of all the things he was into, how he was so righteous and pious by worldly standards. And yet he comes to see that that accounted for nothing. So really, God has already saved one, certainly by Paul's own definition, who's far worse than you and I. So every one of us, has this opportunity and has a way made for us that we can be saved. So Paul starts, a servant of Jesus Christ, literally as Jared mentioned a moment ago, is a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. It's interesting, Paul makes this statement that he was called to be an apostle. It wasn't his choosing, God chose him. And separated unto the gospel. When was he separated? Before he was born. God had this plan. And this gospel which God had promised afore by his prophets in the holy scriptures so again paul a bond servant it's that lifetime commitment a bond servant typically would be somebody the the and the greek word we have is doulos but the idea is that the, the we read about it in uh, leviticus and so on where the, the servant would be go after they've been set free they'd serve their time they'd say no i want to stay with my master and typically they'd be taken to the door of the house and they'd have their ear pierced put up against the the doorpost and they'd have their ear pierced as a sign that they would be their masters forever and paul is saying that's what i've done i've laid down my right to freedom I want to be a servant of Jesus Christ because it's much better than anything I could accomplish or do on my own. Again, appointed by God, not man. It's funny, isn't it, how often those who are appointed by man, those who were ordained by man, will question those who are ordained by God. And Paul makes it clear again here that he's just got this one purpose in life, which is the gospel. That good news, as we were looking at uh, recently, looking at the way that that had been concealed in ages past. And of course, this is the culmination now of all that the prophets had written. And we see that Acts, verse, Acts chapter 10, verse 43, we're told there, to him give all the prophets witness. Speaking of Jesus, the prophets were all looking forward to Jesus coming. And again, the, we see the, the uh, first promise of redemption way back in the book of Genesis in chapter 315, speaking of the seed of the woman. 
the one who would bring salvation. And of course, the messianic details, family, birthplace, all these are recorded in Scripture. And we find, going right back through Genesis, we see in Genesis 1, we see in Genesis 5, the gospel laid out in the names that are there. Genesis 22 with Abraham. Genesis 39 and onwards with the story and the account of Joseph. And then in Exodus, we see the water from, uh, that's coming from the rock, the rock itself, the manna, all of these things pointing forward to Jesus. And then when we get to the New Testament, actually, in the book of Acts, we see the account with uh, the Ethiopian treasure who Philip speaks to. And he's reading the book of Isaiah. And again, it's highlighted how the, the Messiah would have to come and suffer. And this is what Paul is saying. You know, when we look at the Old Testament, we see it was all pointing forward to that which was to come. And Genesis 18 is something that Paul himself will use, and also Genesis 22 in Romans 4, to highlight these things. Verse 3 just carries on. It says, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. It's interesting because if you dig into this, you look at the Greek behind this. The word really is that he came to be. So this is a great declaration of Christ's deity because he existed before he was born. You see, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which came to be of the seed of David. Which means he existed prior to that time. Jesus is eternal. He's the God from ages past. And declared to be the Son of God with power. Of course, we're given here, Paul tells us, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. And of course, it's the resurrection that validated Jesus' claims to his deity. It was that which Jesus was always pointing towards through his ministry. This one great proof that he would give them, that he was God manifest in the flesh. And we're told also of the, the spirit of holiness, speaking of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit being the one who raised up Jesus from the dead. And this idea of redemption, this salvation and grace being a work of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. All in this one verse, Romans chapter 1 verse 4 we see there. Now, just to highlight that working of God, it's interesting, actually, uh, just as a brief tangent for a moment, if you just bear with me, but we've got the creation of the universe. It's attributed to the Father, to the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've got the creation of man. Well, we're told that God the Father's the one who created man, but we're also told in Colossians that Jesus did, and Job 33 is the Holy Spirit. And we see all through Scripture these things, the incarnation ascribed to all three, the death of Christ, the atonement, the resurrection of Jesus, Again, the resurrection of all mankind, the inspiration of the scriptures, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the security of the believer. Again, it's said to be the work of the Father, but it's also the work of the Son, and it's also the work of the Spirit. You see how the Godhead works in unison with all these things. The the eternal existence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Their omnipotence, they're all-powerful, their omniscience, they, they, they know everything. Omnipresence, they can be everywhere. And their truth. Again, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But the Father is also true. And the Spirit is a spirit of truth. Their benevolence and these things. Their uh, disposition for communion, for this idea of fellowship we see. Uh, The whole idea of holiness, again, throughout Scripture. So, we see, again, the whole Trinity working through Scripture. Now, in chapter 1 of the book of Romans, we have five fours, which... 
makes 20, as you know. But uh, this is kind of 2020 vision, in a sense, that you get as you look at this. Um, This is very much a summary of the rest of the book that we see here. Now, what we see is that the gospel is just. It has this universal saving power. It's, in a sense, the secret revelation of God's righteousness on the principle of faith. And it's totally in accord with the Old Testament. We just take you through these five fours. So we have verse 16, four. That's the first one. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Four, that's the second. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. And then our third four is, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That verse we mentioned a moment ago. The fourth of the fours is, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it unto them. The point that's being made there is that God is totally just in what he does. That There's enough evidence, enough witness given to everybody. And then finally, the fifth of these fours, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That incredible section of verses there from 16 to 20, we've really got the gospel presenting that God has made a way of salvation through Jesus Christ and anybody who rejects it, the wrath of God will come upon them and God is totally just in doing that because It's so clear, it's been so obvious for anybody who cares to look of all of these things that Paul is unpacking and revealing here for us. The power of God unto salvation. And note that it's not unto reformation or education. It's not to progress or development or fanning an innate flame or anything like this. It's the power of God to salvation. It's amazing how so many in the church go off on these tangents you know, and they, they think that the power of God is to, to equip them with, with more knowledge or ability. or what. No, it's the, for salvation. That's our greatest need. It is for lost men and no other. You see, men are either involved in salvation or in its opposite, which is perdition. You know, that's the, the simple division that we have. We are either saved or we are perishing. Paul also makes the point that the gospel is to the Jew first. Now, he makes it very clear, and this we see through Scripture a number of times this is made clear. Jesus himself went to the Jews, uh, didn't go to the Gentiles, and didn't want to take the gospel there to the message he was speaking. And of course, the early church went to the Jews first as well. Um, and we go on, and we see that, that, of course, the Jews were God's chosen people. We'll look at this a little bit more in chapter 9, 10, 11 in just a moment. But they were, of course, custodians of the revelation that God had given. The word of God had been given to the Jews. And they've given it to the world. And, of course, it was the people through whom Christ came. So they have a preference of privilege expressed historically And in a chronological priority as well. Jesus stated that salvation is from the Jews. John 4.22, when he's speaking to the woman at the well. So we understand that the Jews have a very important place in God's plan. And we see that in Paul's ministry, um, particularly when you look through the book of Acts, wherever Paul went, he always went to the Jews first. He went to the synagogue. Always went to the Jews first. And three times he responded to their rejection of his message by then turning to the Gentiles. 
And today, of course, evangelism of the world must include the Jews. But the chronological priority of the Jews has been fulfilled. The gospel has gone to them. There's now no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile or the Greek, uh, either in the fact of sin or the availability of salvation. So in regard to salvation, Jews are no more special than Gentiles. We all have this incredible gift of God's grace that allows us to be saved. And the Jews have to enter in in the same way that the Gentiles do, simply by faith in the completed work of Christ. Just to pick up a couple of things I said in chapter 5, the two heads are mentioned, Adam and Christ, the two heads in the sense of these um, uh, families. Um, And we see that which makes uh, um, the union with Christ absolutely irrevocably ours because of him, because of what Christ has accomplished. This contrast um, with our descent from Adam and now, if we are saved, if we're born again, our union with Christ which is this imputed uh, union that we have, uh, that which has been ascribed to us, given to us, something that we hadn't earned, uh, it's been just given to us, this free gift. So we see, of course, we have the man Adam and we have the one man Christ. In uh, chapter 5 again, verse 15, we're told of this one man's offence through which many died. The contrast, of course, is the other man, speaking of Christ, his free gift through which many have been made righteous. We have through the one man judgment and condemnation through Adam, but through Christ we have the gift of justification. We have, uh, again, through Adam, death reigning. And through Christ we have uh, believers that will reign, uh, not just in this life, but in the life to come. We have this new life uh, that we've been given. Again, we have that the one man's offence of Adam brought condemnation to all. But through Jesus, justification has been offered to all. And again, through Adam, many made sinners, but through Christ, many made righteous. And again, through Adam, sin reigned in death. And through Jesus, grace reigns in eternal life. And so Paul gives us this real contrast between these two. The interesting thing, just to observe, of course, is that Adam was a real person. All of this is based upon the fact that Adam was a real individual who lived and walked on this planet. Not some figment of imagination. Jesus speaks of Adam as a real person. Paul here speaks of Adam as a real person. As the the head of the human race in that sense. But where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Just a couple of verses from chapter 6 to highlight. Because Paul says there, don't you know or know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey his servants you are whom you obey it's quite simple it's got a logical argument whether of sin which will lead to death or of obedience unto righteousness you see we've got a choice it says but God be thanked that you were post a past tense the servants of sin but you have obeyed present tense from the heart that form of doctrine which is delivered you what fruit have you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death I love this verse it just says look just think for a moment about the things that you used to be into just think back to how your life used to be before you came to know Christ think about all the fun you had no actually think about all the regrets you've got think about all the things you look and think I wish I'd not done that I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I didn't go there. You see, Paul is saying, you know, what fruit did you have in any of those things? 
You know, yes, of course we know there is pleasure in sin for a season. And that's, that's what Satan does. He makes it seem attractive. But it's deadly. And it corrupts us. And it destroys us. And that's what Satan wants to do. And Paul says, just think for a moment about those things and now look at what you've got. Chapter 7, Paul really kind of builds on this. We get to law school, as it's referred by uh, many uh, commentators and scholars. And we see here, of course, that the, the Mosaic law is where many Christians will go to try and find how to live as a Christian. It's the wrong place to be looking. The law is applicable, but we need to understand how we should use the law. Paul is going to show that the law has no claim on the believer whatsoever. Actually, the law has condemned man to die. And that's exactly the purpose of the law. 2 Corinthians 3.9 tells us that. It was their uh, administration of condemnation. The law is there to confine all under sin, we're told in the book of Galatians. I quite like this quote. It said, uh, you don't contact the judge who sentenced you to die and ask him how you're going to live. And in a sense, that's, that's the way it is. It's kind of paradoxical. But actually, the law has condemned us to die. So why would we go to the law that's condemned us to die to see how we should live our lives? Stephen, before the Sanhedrin, said that they had received the law by the disposition of angels. And they'd not kept it. Peter says that uh, the law was a yoke which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. That's in Acts 15. So the law very clear. There's nothing wrong with the law. Make that very, very clear to start with. There's nothing wrong with the law except that we couldn't keep it. Because it's God's holy standard. Romans 3, just jumping back for a second. Why was the law given? And we're told there, verse 19, Now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law... That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. What a great statement. That's what the law is there to do, to show us what sin is. In fact, Paul in Romans 5 says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Some people, I think, misquote this or misunderstand it. They think that the law was there to make us sin more. It doesn't make a sin more. It exposes where we're already at. Take, for example, that moment that you're driving on the road and you look in the mirror and you see the police car. What do you do? You immediately look at your speedo, don't you? What speed am I doing? Oh, I'm all right. Or, oh, I'm not all right. Whichever, whichever option. You know, suddenly you're brought face to face with the law and it exposes sin. It highlights sin. It makes us aware of our sinful nature. You know, very few people are confronted by a policeman or a police car or whatever else and have absolutely no emotion whatsoever. It makes you think of, am I, am I okay? Am I doing the right thing? You see, the law magnifies sin. That's what it's there to do. And God's law is there to convict us in our conscience, to show us that we have broken God's law. Galatians 3.19 says, Wherefore then serveth the law? What was the purpose of the law? And Paul says there, it was added, it was given to us because of sin, because of transgressions. Until, again, I, I, I'm very grateful to Chuck Misler for this well, number of things, but this particular point where he says, every time you see an until in the Bible, mark it. And this is another one of those great ones. The law was added because of sin, because of transgressions, until the seed should come. So there's a finite duration for this law. 
whom the promise was, to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained um, by angels in the hand of a mediator. So the law was given until the seed, the Messiah, should come. It carries on, verse 23 of Galatians 3. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterward be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster. The, the, the Greek is pedagogue. It's somebody who would go around and chaperone a, a pupil and make sure that they were everywhere they should be at the right times, that they were studying as they should be and so on. More, more, more like a personal tutor uh, in that sense. So that's what the law was with express purpose here to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. That's the purpose of the law. And that's what Paul hammers home in this uh, portion of Romans. And again in Romans 7, we're told, what Paul says there, I had not known sin, but by the law. So the law was there. The law's a good thing, because it shows us that we need a saviour. And that's why people like Ray Comfort and other ministers will use the law in the evangelism. To bring conviction of sin. Because that's exactly what the law is designed to do. To show that we need a saviour. Well then this little first section uh, from chapters 1 through 8 concludes in chapter 8. And we read, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. So it's an incredibly bold statement but really it's building on there is therefore because of that which has gone before because of the things that we've just been going through there is therefore no now no condemnation to them which are in christ jesus and by the way that second part of the verse who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit is not a condition it's a statement of the fact of the life you will walk if you are a christian you see if you are a christian you walk not after the flesh but after the spirit Maybe not every minute of every day, but that is the pattern of your life now. It's a logical argument that Paul is putting forward again, building on the things that he said. And it's one of the greatest assurances that Christians can receive. There is no condemnation from any source, for any reason, at any time. Let me just read that again. There is no condemnation for us as believers from any source, for any reason, at any time. And again, John 3.18 is our reference for that. And there's also no qualifying clause. It does not depend upon our walk. It's very, very clear. It's not how we feel, but what God has said about this. <clears throat> Chapter 8 then opens, and we have no possibility of condemnation. And the beautiful part is that it closes with no possibility of separation. Those two things. What a great comfort for you and I this morning. That there's no possibility of condemnation. And there's no possibility of separation either. Paul says, Romans 8.18, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What a lovely statement that is as well. You know, we struggle. We do have problems in this present time. We are in a world where our bodies are subject to decay, as it is at the moment. You know, anybody that's above the age of about 22, your body's not what it used to be. And you know that when you wake up in the mornings. You know, but this is just this present time. But those things aren't worthy to be compared with the things that God has got ahead for us. You know, we're going to have new bodies that are going to be fit for eternity. Joy and I were talking yesterday about Joy's nan who's just gone home to be with the Lord. Just saying, I wonder what it's like now for her. 
You know, and we're just, just posing and just, just asking the questions about, you know, we don't know quite what it's like in heaven for those that have gone there already. You know, do they get to meet up and talk to each other? You know, has she been able to meet up with her husband and just share the things that have been going on? To talk about her family and the way that, you know, joy has grown and the children and those things. But we know that that place where we walk with the Lord is just going to be so wonderful. There won't be the crying, the tears, the sorrow, the sadness. You know, that's what God has designed for us. And that's why the sufferings of now mean nothing. It's just a temporary thing. And then this great statement, Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature. Is there anything Paul missed out? No, I don't think so. That covers everything. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This great guarantee. You know, even speaking of angels, principalities, demonic spirits, none of them have any power whatsoever. There's nothing else that's in that list. And really this should reprioritize our outlook on everything because nothing can separate us from the love of God. So really the question, and Paul will lead to this in a moment, is so how are we going to live our lives then because of this? But before Paul gets to that, we jump into the second section of the book. And really it's this section that deals with Israel. And the question is, has God finished with Israel? What about Israel? Where do they fit in to God's plan? And really we've got a little trilogy that Paul inserts here. Chapter 9, Israel past in a sense. Chapter 10, Israel present. And chapter 11, looking at the future of Israel. And the question we need to really be addressing here is, does God keep his promises or not? You see, Romans 8 opened with that statement that there is no condemnation. And again, closes with the assurance of no separation. So if God is so faithful in his word that none that he has justified can be condemned and that none in him can be separated, then what about the Israelites? See, why have they who were sovereignly chosen by God and given these unconditional promises completely failed and then be rejected? Because that was seemingly the case. Well, we carry on. And the question then is, how are the Gentiles to relate to the Jews? Now, this was a question that the early church kept asking. You see, if circumcision is of no value without faith, then what advantage has the Jew got? What is the benefit of circumcision? And it's the same question that we saw. We touched on it briefly uh, last time looking at Acts chapter 15. And it's going to be answered very conclusively in these three chapters that we have here. So the issue behind all of this is a demonstration by God to the world that he keeps his promises. Now, I'll let you read, and please do read and go through 9 and 10. I just want to just summarize this whole section by just looking at a few verses from chapter 11, because chapter 11 makes it clear. And I want to make it clear as well, this, this shouldn't be a contentious issue. It is actually a key to understanding scripture. But unfortunately, the church has, by and large, tried to replace Israel as God's chosen people. But that's not what the Bible teaches. You see, the question is, if the Jews have rejected Christ, have they blown it? Have they lost this opportunity? And then, of course, as we were just saying, what about all the promises? What about God's faithfulness and so on? And really, it also leads into what's going on in the Middle East today. There are many Christians that actually don't support Israel in the Middle East. They think Israel shouldn't be there. Incredibly. Well, Paul starts and says, I say then, 
Has God cast away his people? Clearly, it's a reference to the Jews. He says, God forbid, because I'm a Jew. He said, I'm an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, it's a silly suggestion to say that God's cast away the Jews because I'm a Jew. The early church were Jewish. That's the point that he makes. Very, very clearly, the church began with Jews. Paul was a Jew and a Christian. So God hasn't cast away the Jews because the early church was Jewish. So Paul makes that point quite clearly. And he goes on to talk about Elijah. And says that God, just as he did in the time of Elijah, has reserved some of Israel for himself. So in the early church, many Jews have become believers and were saved, but not been cast off. So Paul picks up, we just go into verse 5. Even so then, at this present time, there is also a remnant according to the election of grace. So just as it was in Elijah's time, so now. That God has got... A number of Jews that, according to his grace, are saved. That remnant. And then the big question. What about the rest of Israel? What about national Israel? And so he restates the question. What then? Israel has not obtained that which it seeks for. Which is a statement of fact. But the election has obtained it. And he says, and the rest were blinded. Now it's very clear in the context what he's talking about because the election, he's just told us, are those who are reserved by God, those who are saved, those who have become part of the church. And he says, the rest, which has to be all the other Jews, were blinded. And he goes on to say, according as it is written, God has given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And we have various references, Isaiah 27.10, Isaiah 6.9 and so on, uh, where Paul quotes from for that. And then, Paul says in verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? The question he's saying, really asking is, okay, so they fell, they were blinded, is it permanent? And again, the they, very clearly, the context is referring to those whose eyes have been blinded. So we know who he's talking about, he's talking about national Israel. And then he says, God forbid. doesn't get any clearer than that. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them, the Gentiles, to jealousy. Paul asks the question, has the rest of Israel who were blinded, have they stumbled and that's it, game over for them? He says, no, absolutely not. He uses this really strong term. God forbid is what he says. No way. And then he says, picking up verse 25, uh, for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. It's interesting that Paul writes this some 2,000 years ago, and such a large part of the church are ignorant of this mystery. Lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel, and here we have another one of the untils, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved. Now notice there, blindness in part has happened to Israel. Why in part? Well, because part of the Jews believed. Part of the Jews became the early church. But part of the Jews were blinded. So blindness in part happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel, that which was blinded, that which was part of the church, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, again, fulfilling prophecy, God is faithful there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Paul makes the point 
But as Gentiles, we shouldn't be halted, we should fear. We should realize that God has allowed the Jews to be put in this position of blindness. And we should be even more humble because of this incredible gift that we've been given. This free gift of being able to come into God's family. And be partakers of all the covenants and the benefits that were given to Israel. Paul in Galatians, and we'll get a look there in a few weeks' time, when we get to Galatians, makes it very, very clear. That we were aliens, strangers from the commonwealth of Israel. But we've been allowed to come in and partake of all of that. But we really need to realize that we've come into that which they had. And eventually they also will be restored to that. And so then the final section of the book, the third section of the book, what about us? So we've had this whole doctrinal thing to start with. Paul addresses this issue about the, the, uh, the, the Jews and their position and their future. And so now it's the, the what about us question. Now, again, the first part we saw the helmet of salvation in a sense and the shield of faith displayed in a, typolo- in a typological kind of way. But this last section is very much our feet are to be shod with the preparation of the gospel. This is very much a doing section of the book. Okay, we're to stand in the battle, we're to walk in our life, and we're to run in the race. These things will come out as Paul presents these things. So chapter 12, we're going to see the responsibilities that come from the gifts that God gives us. We're going to see in chapter 13, civil responsibilities. Chapter 14, we'll touch on Christian maturity. What does a mature Christian look like? Chapter 15, we'll see unity within the body. And then finally, Paul closes his book with these personal greetings. So just to, just to give you a couple of quick highlights as we draw to a close now. So under sanctification, we were dealing with character. But in this section now, we're going to be dealing with conduct how we should live our lives okay in the first section is very much looking at the inner man now it's looking at the outward man there it was the condition of the christian here is the consecration of the christian and there it was who the christian is and our position judicially before the throne and so on and here it is what the christian what you and i should do <clears throat> we've seen the privileges of grace And now we consider the precepts of grace, as it were. So this section starts with a very well-known verse indeed. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable, or logical, is the Greek word, reasonable service. Okay, and again, look, therefore... So I beseech you, therefore, is a response to everything that's gone on before this. Because of the mercies, that's God's compassion that's been rendered unto us. <clears throat> that we should present, we should yield, we should give over to God the right to, to ourselves. Our bodies particularly is in reference here. Because our bodies as a Christian are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And to be a living sacrifice, uh, in contrast very much to the Old Testament, sacrifices. You see, Christians are believer priests. We're identified, of course, with our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the believer's offering of his total life as a sacrifice to God represents a complete change in lifestyle. You know, and you see a great model when you look in Leviticus, at the Levitical feasts, of how those offerings were to be presented. And you you have this idea of everything being consumed and taken. And that's what God wants from us, that we give our lives and our bodies. It's not just the inward man that we should give over, but it's our bodies as well. It's the things that we do in our flesh. 
And then we're told, verse 2, that we should be not conformed to this world. And really, Psalm chapter 1, or Psalm 1 is a greater study on this whole idea. But be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know, we need to have our minds undone. And we need to go back and have it redone from God's perspective. Stop being conformed to this age is what it's really saying. Um, you know, not pressed into a mold. That's the whole idea of being conformed. And so often the world would love to do that. You know, the whole idea of modern media and everything else is you know, placed incredible technology in Satan's hands. And depravity now is just unprecedented around the world. The underlying presuppositions of entertainment industry is totally anti-godly. You know, it's very hard these days to sit and watch something on telly that is not offensive to a holy God. And we need to challenge ourselves as to what we do allow and what we don't allow. You see, advertising as well, all around us, is just an exploitation of our basest desires as human beings. That's what they're appealing to. And God says, Paul says here, that we're not to be conformed to those things. And the idea as well is, is to keep on being transformed. It's not a, a once-only thing, that's it, I'm done. No, it's a, a continual process. Uh, the word transformed is uh, the Greek word uh, metamorphosized. So you know, we understand this idea of metamorphosis. Um, it's a total change from the inside out. And the key to this change is the mind. It's the control center of our attitudes, our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions. And that's why our mind needs to be renewed. And you know, you won't renew your mind by doing worldly, secular things, watching telly, listening to the radio, those kind of things. But you will renew your mind by reading God's word, by fellowshipping, by spending time just in things of God. You know, if you're going to listen to radio, listen to Christian radio. There's some really good Christian radio stations. If you're not sure where to find them, have a word with me. I'll tell you where you can listen to them. You know, uh, and there's some great things that you can watch that are edifying, that are godly. Yeah, but better still, just get into God's word and allow God's word to permeate your thinking. Well, we then go on in chapter 13 to the civil responsibilities. And really it just talks about our relationship between uh, the government. How should we respond to a government? Often this is misunderstood and misquoted. And, you know, should we obey a corrupt government? You know, well, we need to understand, of course, that we have dual citizenship as well. You know, biblical submission is a readiness to obey law and uphold legal order. But it's not an an approval or endorsement of all lawmakers or even all laws absolutely. There are laws that will be passed that we will not obey. And there are examples in scripture where even we find that Peter and John were told not to speak in the name of Jesus. They didn't obey the law. They carried on. And so we need to understand our role. It's another area of study maybe for another time. By the end of that chapter we read, And that knowing the time, and we should as Christians know the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. What a great statement of fact that is. Just to mention this, because to say our salvation is nearer, well aren't we already saved? We need to understand the tenses of salvation. You see, past tense, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. The present tense is that separation or salvation from the power of sin. And the future tense is separation from the presence of sin. So all of those things combined. 
And so we see that every part of that, that justification, sanctification, and then glorification as we enter into God's presence one day, it's all part of this process where we are saved. And it's this, you know, we need to understand that there is no question of our salvation in terms of the fact that we've been saved from the penalty of sin. But we are currently being saved from the power of sin, and we will be saved from the very presence of sin itself. And in the New Testament, you'll find these terms used at various places. You need to be clear as to what's being addressed. Otherwise, you can get confused in some of these things. So, And again, Paul just carries on. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. That's a great day for you and I. It's a day of woe and fearfulness for the world. But for you and I, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us get dressed up, folks, because we're going to a wedding. And we need to be dressed in the right clothing. We want to be putting on the armor of light, not the works of darkness. And Ephesians, again, will give us the details of that. And we're told that we should put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts. You know, I love the example that's been often used of you know, putting on a parachute to save you from a jump to come. You don't put on a parachute to give you a better flight on the plane. But you put on a parachute because you know that it will save you from that jump to come. And that's why we put on Christ. It doesn't, Jesus doesn't promise to give us a better life. In fact, we're told we'll have tribulation now. But actually, by putting on Jesus Christ, we have peace because we have that assurance that we are saved from that jump to come. And again, we confess our sin. That's how we put on Christ. It's walking moment by moment, taking every thought captive, one step at a time, trusting in him, and again, being transformed continually by the renewing of our mind. Well, this section just in chapter 14 just talks about Christian maturity. It's just really looking at the difference between a strong and a weak believer. The stronger believer understands liberty in Christ. The spiritual maturity is not measured by what we give up. You know, people sometimes say about, oh, I don't know, I could be a Christian because I I, I don't know I could give this up. It's not about that. You know, I used to have a motorbike and I, I didn't get rid of it when I got married. But you know what? After I got married... There was just other things that were more important to me. And it went. We just, Joy and I just decided we just don't need it now. You know, and there are times you think, oh, it was nice and maybe, you know. But what I have is so much better. And that's the whole point. It's not that we're giving up things that we want to hold on to. It's actually you let go of something because you've got something so much better in Christ. Paul makes the, the point that the weak believer... He's still orientated to the things of this world, the, the laws and the rules particularly. So the weaker Christian still is under those rules. The stronger Christian is sensitive to three different rules or principles. Firstly, the rule of liberty, that anything not expressly prohibited is permitted. The rule of expediency, our liberty should not cause the unsaved to stumble. And finally, the third one is the rule of love, our liberty should not cause the weaker brother to stumble. There's an incredible freedom in Christ. And these you know, are the kind of the internal motivational rules with the attitude of the heart. And Paul taught in chapter 14 that we are not to judge. He says at the beginning of chapter 14, Who are you that judges another man's servant to his own master, i.e. Christ? He stands or falls. And yes, he shall uh, be holding up and help made to stand effectively. For God is able to make him to stand. 
Okay, the servant here is one who lives in the same house as another. We need to understand that we are all, in that sense, living in the same house. And that self-righteous pride is so often a stumbling block. You know, we need to look at ourselves and, uh, and address our own, own issues and so on. And we, you know, we're not trying to convert others to our opinions, but to Christ. Christ is the center of all of this. And then Paul just challenges the believers in Rome and says to us as well, Why do you judge your brother? Why do you set a naught thy brother? For we shall uh, all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Just to mention this, because we need to have it very clear in our minds that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will give an account of the things that we have done in the flesh, as we read there. So, finally then, um, moving on, in chapter 15, Paul introduces an additional principle to observe when dealing with fellow Christians. Uh, he's to follow the example of the Lord Jesus. Jesus was uh, supremely the person who ministered on behalf of others and not for himself. And it's fitting that those who take the name of Jesus should imitate him by serving others. And Paul makes it very, very clear that we should serve each other. Romans 15.4, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Just a reminder there that all of scripture is there for us. Everything is there to benefit us and help us as we grow in the faith. And so the precision of scripture demonstrates its supernatural origin. Chuck Miser again said, once you discover that for yourselves, it changes your entire attitude towards its reliability and your own destiny. He said, this is too important to delegate to others. And so, Paul says, Wherefore, receive you one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. That's how we should receive each other. The model of acceptance for Christians is quite simply the way that Jesus did it. Jesus accepted us when we were powerless, when we were ungodly, when we were sinners, when we were enemies. And you know, that's how we should accept each other. And so, the very last chapter all we have there is this final um, emphasis on the importance of relationships really it concludes with the longest personal list in the epistles Uh, again it's from a city that Paul hadn't yet visited Uh, in his 24 verses he names 33 people and he refers to many others as well Uh, an incredible book Um, there are libraries of commentaries written about the book of Romans I encourage you to avail yourself of just to find some time and sit down and go through this book Uh, there is so much there to to learn and to grow by let's uh, just bow our hearts Father we thank you for this incredible statement of, of doctrine of your faithfulness and Father of our duty Father impress these things upon our hearts we pray we want to know more of you and we want to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you help us to love each other not judge each other Help us to, Lord, be reminded continually of your faithfulness in keeping of your covenants. But, Lord, also rejoice that there is no condemnation and there is nothing that will separate us from your love. We thank you for these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.